In the 1500s, one man had shadowy powers of prediction. Nostradamus. Hidden clues, secret double meanings, and confusing portents in his cryptic poems seemed to foreshadow events that unfolded over hundreds of years after his death. To this day, some people find clues about war, plague, the destruction of nations, and the rise of evil men in every quatrain. Others see meaningless bunk, preferring to rank Nostradamus as a fraud rather than a soothsayer. Did he have incredible abilities? Or was he just a madman, high on opiates, inventing fantastic tales to impress his patrons? No one will ever know. But not even Nostradamus could have predicted that his name would echo as it has through history. Nostradamus. It's a, a name that has become a word that people use to describe someone who thinks that they know more than they can possibly know. He was a real person. And this episode of Blind History, which is brought to you as always by Taylor Blinds and Shutters, my co-host, Anthony Midra, we're going to tell you about Nostradamus. Well, um, as much as we can, because, you know, some people believe he can still tell you more than anybody else, even though he's been dead for hundreds of years. What's your feel on Michel de Nostradamus? I think it's more about the need of humans to know what's about to happen next. When looking at him and, and doing research on him, very intelligent person, but sure, there's, uh, there's just so much gray area around what he did. It's very hard for me to believe any of this. But yeah, he's made a massive impression, probably post his life. You know, when we started doing blind history, we made a decision that we weren't going to do mythological people. They would have to have been real people. And he certainly was that. I mean, he was born in, in um, we actually have a, a rough date, somewhere in December 1503, and he died in about 1566. And we know that he was French and he was extremely well educated. As you said, he was also a physician, an author, a translator. He was um, an astrologer, but he was probably a better doctor than he was a, a prophesier of the future. Correct. Um, and it's hard for people who are skeptical like you and I are to take someone like this seriously for the thing that he is most famous for. But I mean, he's an interesting guy nonetheless. He was obviously extremely smart. He, he went to two different universities as part of his education, he came from a, a middle-class family. They were Jewish by descent. And um, his uncle, I think it was, converted to Catholicism. And that's where the name Nostradamus came from, right? Correct. And at this particular time, and, and we've covered it a lot in, in previous Blind History episodes, it was really difficult being Jewish at the time. Uh, and there was also the Spanish Inquisition and the Inquisition actually all over Europe that was happening at the time. And then there was Henry VIII splitting from the church. It was the Wild West, actually, Listen, in if, terms if, of religion. Whatever your religion was, you were in trouble with somebody. Exactly, 100% right. But it's, it's never been particularly easy for the Jews in Europe until very recently, you know? Yeah. So I think that played out as well very much in his whole life. And he had to be very, very careful of how he worded his prophecies. Yeah, I mean, when he was at university, he studied to be a doctor. And that was at the University of Montpellier. And he was pretty much expelled before he'd even begun because he was working as an apothecary, which was not allowed. You, you know, there was this idea that being an apothecary was so, so different from being a doctor that the two weren't actually in the same business at all. Of course, now these days, you know, your doctor gives you a prescription and you go to your pharmacist and you get what you need. But apothecaries were also these mythological 
creatures too. They they also believed that you know there was a philosopher's stone, and they didn't necessarily know the details of actual chemistry or pharmacology. It was much more of a guessing game, and it was tied to the stars, and it was tied to the humors inside the body. So I think that that probably put a break on his initial ambitions and aspirations, but by no means did he stop. And in fact, there have been some really good reports from firsthand witnesses that as a doctor, he was very proficient when he eventually did get his doctorate. He was able to help people who were dying from the plague. He developed a vitamin C concentrate that people were able to drink to help them get through flus and colds. You know, it makes a lot of sense why he was successful because he did talk about massive amounts of vitamin C, sunlight, getting out into the country because uh, people got confused that they thought that when they heard about the plague, which is what we're really talking about in this period, they used to lock themselves in their homes, but it was coming from the rats, the fleas from the rats. So actually it was better to get out in the open and go into the countryside. And those people that took his advice would actually recover from it together with these they were basically just a whole lot of different vitamins that he put together, which was just helped the the immune system. He was almost more like a a dietitian biokineticist than anything else, because he told people, for example, that a low fat diet and lots of fresh air was a good idea. And remember, in those days, that was quite revolutionary information. <laughs> I mean, Correct. people were treating uh, minor disorders with leeches, and they were they were bleeding people from the head. And I mean, doctors were basically just butchers. And he stopped that bleeding process in his practice. He didn't do that. Right. Um, and I think that was, that was the number one go-to for most doctors in those times. So he did get married, um, and he was married in 1531. His wife and two children all died in 1534 during the plague, which also must have affected him very badly. I mean, sure a, lot did. His, a lot of his predictions and po his poetry, even if you don't believe it's predictions, um, even if you just look at it as poetry, it's very dark and very gloomy very ominous. And it might have been as a result of living in those times and, you know, losing family members and having the stresses that, that life in the 1500s brought with it. And, you know, it was one of his, not disappointments is really a soft word in this case, but it broke him that he couldn't save his own family, he saved so many people from the plague, and he could not manage to save his own family. So it destroyed him and he just disappeared on travels trying to find himself and just let the pain heal. And and also um, it did tarnish his reputation a bit in terms of healing people if he couldn't heal his own family. So there was a bit of both that was in play here in this part of his life. He remarried later on to a woman called Anne Ponsard, and he had six children with her. He also wrote an, an almanac in 1550, which was a massive success. An almanac is sort of a book that gave you the you know, the position of the moon and the position of the stars and a calendar. And that was a big deal in those days because people didn't really plan much in advance. Every day was more or less like the previous day, maybe a bit warmer or a bit colder. And for him to plan out a year was a, a fairly revolutionary move as well. I mean, almanacs were, were well known, but for him to produce his own, it was quite a work of scientific and, and I suppose social genius. Maybe it was also what lay underneath as the scaffolding for what would become his quatrains of predictions later on. His big patron, of course, was Catherine of uh, Medici, who was yes. a big supporter of his. And she obviously was part of the reason that he could eventually finance and publish uh, La Prophétise, which was his, um, Les Prophétis, really, which is his, his book of prophecies. But his second wife, she was a widow and she was very wealthy. So that assisted him a lot as well to be able to actually to follow, you know, his true passion, which was the quatrains, and that's what he started to write. And little did we know, the world knew that his life was quite 
it was going to be cut reasonably short, I suppose, even for that time. Um, in the 50s, he was only going to be living another, I think, another 10 years or something. Right. So let's get to the part that people are probably most interested in. I mean, Nostradamus is supposed to, in his prophecies book, have written about things that were going to happen. And there are many of these prophecies, and I've written down about eight of the ones that I think may or may not have some veracity. They certainly have been taken very seriously by people who believe in these kinds of things. And he was an occultist, so he had studied Jewish Kabbalah and the occult more generally in terms of, of, of Christian views on it. And, and he was regarded by some people as being very dangerous, but he was also supposed to have had supernatural abilities to predict the future. And we can go through a few of these. I mean, supposedly, he predicted with fair accuracy the French Revolution. You know, he said people lose their heads. I mean, it was it was in those exact words. He may or may not have predicted the the rise of Louis Pasteur and the defeat of bacteria and bacterial infection. Um, he even called him pastor, as as in Christian priest. But a lot of people say that that was just a sobriquet for Pasteur, the guy who eventually developed penicillin. He's supposed to have predicted the two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki because he spoke about these two explosions and then plague within plague and a famine that came afterwards in two great cities. And, you know, you could probably have found, because a lot of his language is quite general, you could have found some other examples in history of, you know, two cities that were battling each other that perhaps didn't involve atomic bombs at all. But a lot of people say that that's very close to the Hiroshima Nagasaki story. Supposedly, he predicted the rise of Napoleon. Correct. But the way he wrote all these prophecies is in such a way that he wouldn't get the attention of the church. So, you know, people that support his prophecies obviously say he had to word it in such a way that it was quite difficult to determine that he was, so he didn't end up being a charlatan or whatever it might be. But well, I mean, look, the most dangerous thing that could happen in those days was probably that they would call you a heretic and burn you at the stake. Correct. Um, considering, you know, he already had, uh, had to overcome a number of things to just be able to write freely. And then a lot of people say, well, if you keep it general, then it turns out that a lot more of your predictions look like they're true. Um, he was supposed to have predicted 9-11, where he said two steel birds will crash into tall buildings. And, you know, again, that's quite specific and it, it, it yeah. is alarming if, if, if it's even close to the truth. A lot of people say, well, you know, that's about as close as you could get in 1500. Yeah. And then killing of President John F. Kennedy. He speaks about it from on high and evil will fall on the great man, perhaps a reference to the fact that he was shot from a distance by snipers or sniper. And then uh, continues that dead innocent will be accused of the deed. And there's, you know, the whole story around did Lee yeah, Harvey Oswald, right. was he the one, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another one. And the death of Henry II of France was, was also reasonably accurate. It wasn't in battle, but it was jousting, but it was very similar. And he predicted that, that he would die a very painful death through the eye and it's exactly what happened um, yeah. a soldier lanced him through the eye and it, and it just got <laughs> infected and septic it took 10 days to die the one um of interest to me is obviously the coming of adolf hitler that was quite interesting his prophecy on that do, do you have the lines he refers to from the depths of west europe nostradamus wrote a young child will be born of poor people and what does this child do he will buy his tongue seduce a great troop and his fame will be spread far beyond europe and then there also refers in this one to Hister, um, which could be a reference to Hitler or, or that that was also a name for the Danube, which an older name for the Danube. 
So that was another interesting thing. I mean, you, you can't really tell me that there's anyone else in history who seduced by his tongue a large troop. I mean, that to me just sounds, that's very much like the kind of oratory power that Hitler had, correct, a large correct. troop. I mean, the German troops are probably the most famous mental image any of us have with those helmets and those, um, you know, those German Nazi uniforms. That's kind of, that's burnt into our, our minds if you've studied history at all. And yes, for him and it, to have seen that in advance or to, to have been able to write something like that in advance, it's kind of spooky, I, I will admit. The Great Fire of London. Yeah, yeah, that's on my list as well. So what, yeah. you actually have the, the lines that are supposed to have predicted the Great Fire? Uh, the blood of just will commit a fault at London, burnt through lightning of 23 the 6. The <laughs> ancient lady will fall from her high place. Several of the same sect will be killed. 23 is the 6. Uh, 66, that's so 20 times 3 plus 6. That gives you the term of, so it was 1666 was the Great Fire. Obviously, post that, you can start, you know, yeah. putting anything together well, to get to this that. Is, this is the thing. And again, I don't want to spoil it for people who are real fans of Nostradamus because they'll probably be the ones who like this episode the most. And to say, look, a lot of this stuff could probably be retro-engineered to sound like it was very specific. But you know how people are. They find... You know, they count the spaces between words in the Bible and they say there's a secret code. And, you know, there may be in many places that we don't expect there to be. There may be secrets and, and real powers and, and unbelievable things that we are unable to, in modern scientific terms, decipher properly or explain. But we're not in the business of supporting or declaring his prophecies rubbish. I think we're just in the, in the business today of looking at some of them. Some of the things that you look at are quite scary. When you look at metal in the sky, when he starts re referring to maybe 9-11, et cetera, or fireballs, there will be two big fireballs. I mean, it's quite scary. And what makes you think of that? You know, so it's, well, I mean, it's so hard ways, to judge. You know, they took a couple of his quatrains. And the reason they're called quatrains is because he, he wrote four lines at a time. So they were, they were almost like poems. And, Four of the quatrains are, are fairly clearly about some sort of creature that will be made of metal, that will have fire on the inside, that will do all the work. And he's pretty much discussing in, in that quatrain. And remember, with a 1500s brain, there was no mechanization then. Correct. What he's talking about is how machines, robots or, or, or mechanical um, devices will do a lot of the work for humans that humans are, are doing at the time that he writes this. And that is, if nothing else, it's quite extraordinary that he was able to pull that out of thin air because it wasn't something that you would have said in 1500 without being laughed at in public you know a machine to them the most complicated machines around at that time were probably i don't know uh, devices used to lift stones whatever this guy had he certainly had an ability to make people take notice and uh, we mentioned some of his wealthy patrons earlier on and many popular authors have retold all kinds of legends about his life i mean He's supposed to have had magical powers. You know, this is where it starts getting into the, the messy world of, of nonsense and, and make believe. But, um, he was widely read. So he'd read a lot of the classics. Apparently one of his sources for his prophecies was something called the Mirabilis Liber of 1522, which contained a range of prophecies from all kinds of people, including, uh, Savonarola, who we've spoken about in a previous episode, um, Tibetine Sibyl, uh, Pseudo Methodius, and uh, Joachim of Fiore, who all sound like interesting people themselves. But it had a lot of success in the years before he published his prophecies. So some people say, well, he got a lot of his ideas from there as well. 
I think as well, Gareth, on this point, history repeats itself. So they were saying that he used that, that mm. uh, history will repeat itself. And to such an extent, referring back to very old occurrences, and they called it bibliomancy. I think that, I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but it refers back to biblical times and then trying to predict it going forward in the future. So that was also areas where his sources for his, um, for his prophecies. Well, I mean, he wasn't very keen to have been called a prophet. He wrote to King Henry II, the same guy who he predicted would die so horribly, said to him, some of the prophets predicted great and marvelous things to come, though for me, I in no way attribute to myself such a title here that he wrote to the king in 1558. And he's supposed to have said to his own children, you know, I'm not a prophet. I'm I would never attribute such a thing to myself. But of course, when people speak like that, it's like a false humility. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the astrologers were also not very kind to him. I mean, you know, they would say that the astrologers of the time would say, I can say with complete confidence that of true astrology, you understand less than nothing, as is evident not merely to the learned, but to the learners in astrology too. As your works amply demonstrate, you who cannot calculate the least movement of any heavenly body whatsoever. So, so he had his, obviously he had his critics in his time, but, but you know, nobody knows the name of that uh, astrologer that wrote that piece, <laughs> but everybody knows Nostradamus. Well, I mean, this is what's so interesting. So in popular culture, obviously he's become this unbelievable source of all kinds of prophecy, but the problem with Nostradamus's prophecies is they should have run out at some point. Um, you know, the more time you give a prophecy to come true over, you know, thousands and thousands of years, there's a huge likelihood that all of them will eventually come true. Yeah. Um, even if you read it upside down, it'll eventually come true. But the fact is that, you know, people are still saying, well, he had all kinds of predictions for 2020 and 2021. He didn't lay it out like a calendar. You have to find some verse, some quatrain somewhere, and you have to say, oh, well, he's definitely talking about 2020 here because he didn't put there 14th of April 2021, X and Y will happen. Yeah, and, and how far ahead did he actually think? No, so well, maybe they said, you know, he was on those magic mushrooms um, yeah. and and then there's time is no concept. So maybe that's his predictions could be of any time. Yeah. But that's also a stretch, you know. So it's getting the dates together and working out what it applies to. Look, these massive events, like you mentioned with Hitler, it's actually quite close. And that's the spooky part. Hmm. And then the, and and Henry the Second. Look, that was very much in his own time. Henry the Second was quite spooky, so that's hard to say. But then there's a lot of them that are all over the place. So I I think this guy was a, a pretty uh, interesting chap. Even if we don't take any of his prophecies seriously, he certainly made a name for himself. I mean, anybody who can go down in history with one word as their name, you know, Cleopatra, Caesar. Nostradamus. These are people who've managed to make themselves iconic in some way. And he certainly did that. I mean, he, he, you know, he died kind of ignominiously, left a will for his children. Everything was well prepared. You would expect a, a prophet, <laughs> a, a guy who was a prophet to leave a decent will behind. And he did that. Um, so he made sure everything was taken care of. It was all very tidy after his death because there's nothing worse than a psychic who doesn't know when they're going to die. <laughs> exactly. And, and then they leave everything in disarray. <laughs> yeah. And he was quite wealthy eh, from what he achieved through his life. No, he did well. You know, whether you believe anything that he wrote down or not, these days we have the internet and you could find some dark corner of the internet that predicts with fair degrees of accuracy something that's going to happen tomorrow. Doesn't mean we go around calling everybody prophets, but if someone really thinks they know what's happening next, we end up calling them Nostradamus. 
Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I found it interesting that he predicted his own death. I mean, the night of his death, he wrote down, in the morning, you shall not find me breathing. And that's exactly what happened. It wasn't a poem. It wasn't some cryptic thing. He just said to his secretary, I think, who found the note. There he was, dead the next day. I suppose it's hard to say in the 1500s, but it sounded like a heart attack. Supposedly, it was from gout. He had severe gout towards the end of his life, and it might have developed into an edema, which is a heart attack. 